Well, you guys were ready this morning. Uh, my job is just not to blow what the Holy Spirit's already doing, uh, because you guys were, man, y'all were singing, and it sounded good. And uh, so I, I feel like God is, is moving. I feel like your hearts are prepared for his word. Uh, so take your Bible out, turn to the book of Esther. Uh, we started last week walking through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, the book of Esther. So we're in chapter one, starting in verse 10 this morning, and we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, I would love for you, and it's important, there, there's a certain literary quality to the book of Esther. It's a history book. Uh, and so it's, it's best read all together. We can't do that every single Sunday together. Uh, but I would encourage you to be reading it at home. And uh, as always, we encourage you to be reading Scripture at home, uh, to be studying God's Word, uh, to be growing in an understanding of His Word. It will encourage you. It will challenge you. It is what we need to sustain us in life and have joy in the gospel truth. Uh, so be doing that. But if you have your Bible with you, follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen. And if you don't have a Bible at all, um, then we would love to give you one. And so there's a stack of Bibles in the lobby. You can take one of those. Uh, that's our free gift to you. If you're at home watching and you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love to send you one. There should be a link in the video, and you can go ahead and click on that. Let us know who you are and that you would desire a Bible. We'll send you one. We want everybody to have God's Word. All right, so hopefully you found Esther by now. Um, last week, we began to see how the story of Esther really fits within the narrative of all of Scripture. It gives us this little glimpse of the story of God and His redemptive plan, His salvation that is coming. But it does so very uniquely. All of Scripture, we can see God's plan as we study from, from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, but God's all over it. His name is all through it, and we can clearly see when we read Scripture, God is doing this, and God is moving in this way, and, and God is, is, is actively working over here. But then the book of Esther gives us the whole kind of grand narrative of Scripture and God's redemptive plan without even using the name of God. We, we see just this unique aspect of the redemptive story of God through the book of Esther that God is moving and working even when we cannot feel him even when we can't see him, even when we would question or doubt his very existence in our lives, that his redemptive plan is working. And he gives us this opportunity in the book of Esther to really deal with our doubt and to question or to doubt our own doubts, to, to think to ourselves, man, when I don't feel God, when I don't sense God, and I've got this, this poised foot, so to speak, where I could either lean in and discover how even when I feel he is absent, he is working powerfully. And I can trust him and put my faith in him in even deeper ways in my life and experience the joy of the gospel in a more true and real way. Or I could step backwards and, and question the reality that God is working providentially at all. And the book of Esther just screams to us loudly, we can trust him. He's working, he's active, he's moving. And it's one of the reasons that I love this book so much. And, and last week, um, we started, we were introduced to the first character in the book, and the whole first chapter is dedicated to this character. And, and as we're looking at it, we might question to ourselves, like, why? Like, where's Esther like, like in this whole thing, right? Like, we, we didn't talk about her last week. We're not going to talk about her this week. She's not going to be introduced until next week. And, and so it's just like, where's she at? Why is King Xerxes 
right? The, the guy that we're kind of focusing this whole first chapter on, I think that God does this to reveal two really important things to us as we start to understand what God is doing in the book of Esther. He revealed to us last week as we began to see this, this king that, that really is at the height of all human power. He's got everything. He's got all the money, all the power, all the servants, all the, like, everything that you could possibly desire that we would call successful in the world, he has it in spades and to spare, so much so that he invites everybody in the city of Susa where he is living in the palace to come and partake in everything that he has. And he's like, I have so much and I have so much in excess that I'm willing to give it to you. And you can have as much as you want, and I'll provide for you and everything that you want and everything that you desire. And it won't even put a dent in what I have, and all that it will give me is more glory from you. And so he's just pouring out. He has all the power, money, everything, and he has worshiped as God. And he believes himself to be God, and his word is as as scripture. It is the word of the Lord. Maybe you've heard of the, the law of the Medes and the Persians, that whatever the law says, it is irrevocable. So his word is the word of God. And we began to discover that though he held all of this power, that that he alone, no matter what he possessed, what he had, in all of his attempts to provide for himself the glory he wanted, to prove to himself and to others that he was God, and to provide for everyone else in a sense that, that they wanted and desired to know that he was worthy of their worship and he could provide for them. He did so, we saw, through both military power And also displaying, as I said, his ability to give everything that we would want and need and desire. He did that through throwing parties. And there's actually more than 10 parties throughout the book of Esther. It is a party book. And the author actually uses those parties as transitions throughout the story. But Xerxes uses these parties to reveal his great wealth and power and that he can provide for all people. But also he does so with a mighty military. And he's getting prepared to go to battle with the Greeks, as we talked about last week. And so he throws this huge party, right? Now, I want to kind of bring us up to speed. And and, and, uh, so all of us are kind of on the same page. Maybe some of you just need a a reminder from last week, and maybe some of you missed last week. And so um, he throws this massive party, and it's to plan to go to battle with the Greeks, but also it's to kind of celebrate victory before the war even happens, He believes he's so powerful that nothing can stop him. And so he's going to demonstrate that power by saying, look, we're going to plan. We're going to get all of our military leaders together, and we're going to have this six-month-long party, and there will be some planning. Uh, But listen, we're celebrating the fact that we cannot be beat. And I'm going to instill in you the confidence that no one can come up against me, for I am God. And then after this six-month party, he throws another party. Not just for all of his leaders, but for everybody in the city. And that party lasts seven days. And it is the largest party in human history. As we talked about, the only rule for these parties is there's no rule. And so you drink as much as you want. You party as much as you want. Um, You can do whatever you desire to do. There's no rules. It's all on the king's dime, and you can do whatever you desire. And because he is your God and he is telling you can do so, there is nothing holding you back. There are no consequences for anything that you might do. 
On top of that, he's got all of the men in one part of the palace, and all of the women are with Queen Vashti, who we'll be introduced to today. And so all the women are there, and all of the women that are actually in the the side of the palace that the men are in are all hired for the men. And so, hey, look, you come in, it's all you can drink, it's all you can do, it's all that you can think about, everything here is for you. This is absolutely sin unhinged. If you can imagine just the worst that could possibly happen and no consequences for it, like every desire of your heart, man, it's available. And I don't have to worry about what might come from it. And and I think it's important for us to get back into this mindset as we get into this continuation of the book of Esther to just think for a moment, what would it look like if we've just got six months and then seven days of just all I can eat and all you can drink and all you can imagine you can do and it's all available to you by the one that you call God. There's no consequences at all and so everything I desire I can do and, and I don't know what that would look like. But I just imagine like the biggest partier we know of today, right? I don't even know. I mean, maybe Hugh Hefner in his prime is just standing off in the corner looking at this party going, this is too much. Like this is just too much. Like I, I don't know what all was going on, but I just know they could do anything that they wanted and there were no consequences. So listen, Xerxes represents to us the pinnacle of power and provision that the world has to offer. That's what we need to understand as Xerxes. I believe that that's why God is introducing him first and giving a whole chapter to display his power and then how he deals with his power as we will see today. And we began to see last week that though he's the pinnacle of power and provision, we began to understand that the height of humanity, the the power, the glory of humanity, the riches of humanity, the praises of humanity, the hope of humanity at its best is not enough. It falls short. He wants more. He's afraid of what he might lose, of what he already has. And everybody is willing to worship him to get just a little bit of what he has and the provision that he provides. And that our hearts, getting all that they desire and search for, and all that we long for and were created for, listen, it only leads to brokenness. It only leads to an understanding that there's, there's something more that I long for. And so it never brings redemption or satisfaction or hope or joy or, or justice or love. And we began to see that play out through the power of Xerxes, this representation of the power that the world has to offer, the provision that we might find in the things of the world. And when we began to come to grips with that reality, that the height of everything we can experience on earth is not enough because those things were not created to fulfill us and sustain us and bring justice and love and satisfaction, that, that those all fall short and we within them fall short, that they never actually satisfy, that there is a better king and a better kingdom than anything that the world has to offer. And that was the question that we asked last week. And in all of this, in light of everything that we saw of King Xerxes and his kingdom and his provision and his power, we were left just wondering, man, if this is not enough, is there, is there something better? Is there a better king and is there a better kingdom? 
And we saw that the book of Esther begins to clearly say yes, that God is providentially working even in this story to reveal that there is a better king that was coming. We can look back and see that the king has come and that he lived perfectly on our behalf. He died to pay the penalty of our sin and our death, that by grace we might be saved. And he rose from the grave to overcome sin and death. And he is the better king. He is the one that we long for. He is the provider that we need. He gives us the salvation that, that makes clear who we are and what we were created to be and satisfies us beyond what the world can give or, listen to me, what the world can take away. Jesus is the thing that Xerxes desired to be but could not, and he is what you long for but you cannot be. And he comes and he demonstrates that and he, he allows us to see his kingdom of justice and, and peace and fairness and equality and equity and, and, and a deeper comfort than the world has to offer. He displays all of this to us. Jesus, our one true salvation, the way, the truth, and the life. And listen, as we continue this story today, we pick up at the end of the second party. So we're like on day seven of the, of the seven-day party after the six-month party. And Xerxes is going to reveal something very important to us. And again, I think this is why God starts this book off this way as he's telling this story. Because we see that there is a better king and kingdom, but there's also a better way to deal with how we seek life in our, in our world and how we try to build our own kingdoms and how we seek to be our own kings. Is there a better way in the better king and better kingdom to deal with the brokenness and sin of rebelling against God and seeking to be our own king and kingdom? Is there a better way? We saw last week there's a better king and kingdom. This week we look and see and ask the question, is there a better way to live in this kingdom than me just continuing to try my hardest to do my best in hopes that I will have everything that I long for, even if I believe there's a better king and a better kingdom? And so look with me in this text, Esther chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Here's what God's word says. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, so you know whatever's about to happen is going to be interesting. He commanded, and this is where the hard, the hard uh, names start, okay? And so this is typically where pastors just read fast and just hope that you don't catch the fact that they messed up. Mahuman, Bezthe, Arbana, Bigtha, and Ag uh, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who were served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs, at the king's, uh, and the king became enraged. This is probably the first time anybody's told him no. Um, and so this is very interesting, and we've got an interesting dilemma here. Did Queen Vashti do what was right? And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But this angered him and this, this burned within him. Verse 13, then the king said to the wise men uh, who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, and Matha, 
Tarshish, Maurice, Marcina, and Mamukin. I love that one because I, I played Street Fighter growing up, and it just reminds me of Ayukin. And if you know what I mean, then you can laugh. If you don't, then you're younger than me. And Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, I want to get something. And the seven princes of, of Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. Verse 15, according to the law, what was to be done with Queen Vashti, because she was not performing the command of the king, Xerxes delivered by the eunuchs. When Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Xerxes. This is a big deal, king. She said no, and we're a little bit afraid for ourselves that if your wife can say no, so can ours, all right? So verse 17, for the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written in the law and the Persians and the Medes, that it may be repealed. That Vashti never again come before King Xerxes and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she, who listens better. You need a queen who listens. So when the decree made by the king was, is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all the women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters all the royal provinces to every province, its own script, and every people in its own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Man. See, last week we saw this power of Xerxes. This week we see that all the power in the world, and he can't even rule his wife. Right? We are not as, as powerful as we ever think we are. And this king has it all, and we saw that last week, but then we see that he really has no power, even over those who are closest to him. And the question is, how do we deal with that pride? How do we deal with our character? How do we deal with our sin? Is there a way in the, with the better king and in the better kingdom to deal with our rebellion? to deal with our sin than we see King Xerxes do here who just chases down his sin and rebellion and goes deeper and deeper into it, if you notice that throughout this text. And so as we read this together, we begin to see, all right, on the seventh day of the party, the last day of everybody being brought into the palace, the largest party in human history, and it says Xerxes has participated with the people as well. And it literally says here that his heart was merry with wine. Now, I made a joke about this as we were reading, but how many of you know, and we talked a little bit about this last week, so I won't repeat it all again, but just to kind of get us in the right mindset for what's about to happen, how many of us understand and know that we do not make the wisest decisions of our life when we've had too much to drink? In fact, it's the exact opposite. We are bound to do something that we will regret, that we will have to apologize for later. Typically, it's not just bad for us, but it's bad for those around us. 
And so he's in this situation, and, and I'll just say this. This is one of the reasons, and I feel like this is important to point out, and there are several things as we walk through the book of Esther that, that we could kind of go on sidetracks or rabbit trails on, but I think they're really good points to be made here, and I think this one's actually important for us to understand what's going on here in this text and why God starts off the book of Esther this way. But this is one of the reasons that God actually says that drunkenness is a sin. And, and that we just lose ourselves, that we begin to do things that, that we're out of control, that we wouldn't normally do. And, and so I want to make this clear that not just drunkenness being a sin, but the law of God itself is not to keep you from having fun. And it's not to keep you from everything that you desire and to keep you from the freedom that you want. But it's actually, as we will see as we continue on through the book of Esther, to keep us from losing joy. It actually gives us happiness. It fulfills us and, and it allows us to walk in freedom without being encumbered and enslaved to sin. Without being captured and raptured up in things that will kill us and take life from us and from those around us. And so all of the things that you have ever done in your life, I promise you this, that has walked in rebellion against the things that God has called us to do in honor and glory of him and to walk in the freedom that only he can provide in his law has only hindered you and affected negatively those around you. And so everything you've wanted to do in your life where you're like, this is it, this is going to give me so much joy, this will help me escape from what's going on, this will bring me happiness, and if it's against the glory of God and how he has called us to walk in freedom in him, then it has brought destruction in your life. Just look back on all of those things and you will see that it has never actually done what you thought it would do, what it promised you it would. It's always negatively affected you. So when God gives us a law, it's not to take fun from us, but it's to give us joy in him. And so a lot of times I think that we think that God gives us these rules to steal from us, but it's actually to free us. That when we are brought into community with God, that we actually have in him everything that we long for. So we don't need to gain anything. We don't have to fear losing anything because he's what we were created for. And when he satisfies our hearts then suddenly the things of the world no longer are the things that satisfy because we're satisfied in him. The things that we lose that we've gained from the world, we don't lose our satisfaction because they never satisfied us in the first place. He satisfies us. And so we're able to give, we're able to lose, and the Lord gives and takes away, and we still say, blessed be the name of the Lord because he is our satisfaction. He is our joy. And when we walk in him and we have a deep understanding of the reality of the gospel, then we don't see God saying, don't do that and do this as a negative thing, but we see it as a freeing thing that allows us to experience the satisfaction that only comes in him. And so his law is beautiful to us. If you're not a believer this morning, then his law is there to point you to the reality that you can't do this thing on your, by yourself. You cannot save yourself. You can ascend to the height of King Xerxes and have everything in the world, and it will not be enough. You will not be able to live good enough. But the law tells us that we need a savior, and the good news is, as we saw last week, there is a better king and a better kingdom. And Jesus does all of the work on our behalf, and by his grace we can be saved, and by our faith being placed in his work and not our own, we can be saved and satisfied in him.
And the hard work of Christianity, as we often say, is not doing the hard work of the law of God. The law is just there to point you to the reality that you need him and then to give you a pathway in which to honor him and be satisfied in him. But the hard work of Christianity is just understanding that in God, I have everything and I need nothing. I need nothing else. So nothing can be given to me that would add to my satisfaction in him. And nothing could be taken away to take away my satisfaction in him alone. And see, then we're able to walk in the law, understanding that God as a good father loves us and cares for us and gives us what he desires for us to walk in. But when we are not seeking Christ, listen to me, when we're not seeking Christ, when we're not finding our satisfaction in him, then we will not be free in him. We will find ourselves feeling like there's something in the world that was created for me just to express the glory of God with, in community with him, and suddenly in rebellion to God by not finding our satisfaction in him, but seeking ultimately to be him, to be God, to find our own salvation, to to live our own lives, to make our own rules, then we will believe that there is something in the world we need to have the salvation we long for. And we'll constantly need more and more and more of it, as we saw last week, because nothing will satisfy no matter how much we get. And we will constantly fear losing what we already have. You will not be free outside of God and his law and his gospel truth that sets us free by his grace to walk in his reality of the law that he's laid out for us, but we will be enslaved to the things of the world and our own desires. And we see this through Xerxes so powerfully. And as we continue, it will just become more and more clear. But listen, if you're not placing your faith in the grace of God, then you will be enslaved to your own desires, to the people around you, to the relationships you have, to the things that you have. And you will be anxious all the time about, will I get it and will I lose it? Your life will be full of anxiety. And you will, listen, have an addiction to seeking salvation and something else. You will have an addiction to getting out of the enslavement by running deeper into the enslavement of the world. You will be addicted to finding the the provision that only God can give. You'll be addicted to filling the void that you were created to have community with God in the things that God created you for you to give glory to him with. There will be a deep addiction there in the things of the world. And some of those addictions will be what we call negative addictions. Things that we seek to kind of forget things with, to push things under the rug, to escape in. And we all understand that there are addictions to negative things. These are things that visibly harm us and others around us. That would be considered what Xerxes is doing even in this moment with this party. But there are also some addictions that we will pursue to fill the void that we can only fill in Christ, to find the provision of salvation that we long for but lost when we rebelled against God to try to find our own way that we would call in the world positive things. And so I'm going to call them positive addictions. And these are good things that we try to pursue as God things. Instead of seeing God as our Savior and Lord and allowing us to have friends and relationships and jobs and successes and blessings to give glory to him with, to reveal him through, we actually see relationships, family, jobs, success, blessings as the gods that we need to bring us provision and salvation. 
and these are, ne- are positive addictions, but they're addictions nonetheless to something that cannot fulfill what we're seeking for them to do in us. And every single one of us, if we are not, and I want us to understand this, this is really important for us to see in this text, that if we are not placing our faith in the grace of God through his work on the cross and resurrection and his perfect life on our behalf, and he is not our Lord and Savior, and we do not desire to walk and honor him and image him in every way to reveal and give glory to him with everything we have and everything that we are, then you are addicted to finding that provision only he can give in the things of the world. In negative ways and in what we would call positive ways. And the key here is when we are not walking with Christ, we are walking from Christ. There's only two options. You are never just standing still. You are walking towards him or you are walking away from him. You're walking towards freedom and life or you're walking away from freedom and towards death. There's only two options, and we find ourselves without Christ under the influence, under the influence of a broken world with broken desires. And when we look inward and think, what do I want? What do I long for? What do I see in the world that might be able to provide that? It's from an addiction to the things of the world because we're under the influence of sin and rebellion. And we think to ourselves, this will satisfy. And we just go deeper and deeper and deeper away from God. Away to the one who can, from the one who can save Chasing things and relationships to fulfill us in ways that they were never meant to. It's an addiction to finding the provision and salvation we were created to have in Christ alone. And we find that Xerxes does all that he does, listen to me, from an addiction of his position. Everything he does is because he has an addiction to be God, an addiction to be worshipped, an addiction to be admired. So his addiction is, I'm going to find my provision that God alone can give me in becoming the God that I should be worshiping. So I'm going to put myself high and lifted up, and I'm going to provide everything else that everybody needs and wants around me so that I can control them. So here's what the, the, the man of power, the king of power in this text understands. He doesn't understand that he has an addiction to something that can't save him, but he does understand that he can feed the addiction of his people so that they will worship him. And this is what the world will do. Outside of Christ, we all have an addiction to find the provision that only he can give, and the world will seek, the enemy will seek to feed that addiction to keep us from going towards Christ and into the things of the world deeper. And our natural hearts, our sinful hearts, our rebellious hearts will think it's a good idea That's why we see the people just blindly following Xerxes and everything that he provides for them. Because they're under the influence. We, without Christ, are under the influence of this addiction. Define salvation. We, with Xerxes, will do anything that it takes. Anything that it takes to find that provision. And that means we'll do things under the influence of sin and rebellion that we would not otherwise do. Just like Xerxes here under the influence of of alcohol will do things that he would not otherwise do. 
We will act irrationally, impulsively. We will look inward and and be selfish and we'll make decisions through our own desires and we will use others to get what we want. We will take really bad advice from the things of the world and we'll continue to chase down rabbit holes and one sin will lead to another sin will lead to another sin. Just like we see with Xerxes under the influence of alcohol, we will do under the influence of sin. We'll make decisions that we will regret and we will hurt others in the process. Am I describing anybody's life here this morning? That these are things that we struggle with. So listen to me. God doesn't just say stuff to keep us from living the life to the fullest that we desire, but he wants us to enjoy our lives being full of him. And that's what actually satisfies our soul. His salvation alone breaks the addictions of the world. I want you to hear this this morning, that the gospel truth of Jesus Christ is the unwanted but desperately needed intervention into our addiction to sin and rebellion that can radically transform our lives and save us to begin walking in the freedom that only Christ provides. His gospel truth is everything that we need. And Xerxes demonstrates this to us in this text, and we need to see it so desperately. So so here here it is. This party's wrapping up, all right? We'll go through this text really quickly. The party's wrapping up. He's giving the people everything. Like, they feel provided for. Like, he's laid it all out on the line, and he has these people in the palm of his hands. Like, they are singing out for he's a jolly good fellow. Like, they're just, they're pumped, Like this guy, the man, he is our provider. And he himself has had too much to drink. And he's thinking to himself, because you will never be satisfied in the things of the world, but you will be addicted to seeking more and more of it. He thinks to himself, man, I've given them all these things, but I'm loving this worship. I'm loving this glory. I'm I'm loving getting more and more, and I need more and more. What else can I do? And And it dawns on him, man, my wife is really pretty. And I, I bet you that if I brought her in here in front of all of these other drunk men, that they would look to me and go, that's your wife? And so what Xerxes thinks to himself is, man, I need more. And I've given everything, but the one thing that I have left is a beautiful wife who can come in here and parade around for these men, and they will lust after her. And they will give me more glory because they will wish that they had what I have. And so here he is at this point. And listen, at this point, we have to, if we're astute at all, begin to understand that the most powerful man in the world is actually enslaved to all of those that he rules over. He's just doing everything he thinks he needs to do to get them to worship him. And we need to understand that this is the way that power works in the world. It actually doesn't exist. There is one who has power, and his name's Jesus. And he is sovereign and in control over all things. And any power we believe that we have, it is actually a a pseudo power, and it will fall under the weight of any weight that's put on it because our power is just bending to everything around us to get it to give glory to us, to get it to listen to us. And this is what he does with the people and so he says, oh yeah, my wife is, is beautiful and I'm sure that everybody will like to see him. So he sends his seven eunuchs. I probably don't need to describe what that is, but these are men who have been castrated. There were hundreds of them a year that were done so to look over King Xerxes' harem. 
And so he wanted to make sure that, that nothing would happen between his harem and the men who watched over. So they were, they were eunuchs. And he says, bring Queen Vashti to me in her royal crown. And, and by the way, Queen Vashti probably is not her real name. Uh, it could be, but it's probably not her real name. Uh, in Persia and in Persian culture, Vashti actually means beautiful or, or most loved, um, favorite. And so a lot of times with Persian princesses and queens, if it was the, the favorite of the king, uh, then they would be called Vashti. And so the author of the book of Esther wants us to understand that this is not just any queen. Xerxes had multiple queens, but this is his favorite queen. This is the one that he, he finds the most value in. And so he wants to bring her, and Jewish tradition says that he is actually asking her to come with nothing but her crown on. Uh, we're not sure if that's actually true or not. It would be against culture, but these men are not in their right minds. And so maybe that is what he's asking her to do, but we do know that he is searching for more and more glory. He wants a higher and higher position. He is an addict, and he is willing to hurt anyone or anything to get what he wants, even his favorite, even the one he says, I love the most, even the one that I get the most from. It's all about what he can get, the addiction to power and success and position. And so he doesn't love his wife. He uses his wife. He doesn't protect his wife. He isn't caring for his wife. He is not at all in a position where he actually loves or cares or has compassion for her. He just wants to parade her. And so he calls her before. Now, here's what I want to ask. Should she say yes or should she say no? I heard some no's. Maybe some of you would say, I don't know, he's the king and he could kill her. So maybe she should say yes, or some of you might kind of pull out, and these are not believers, but some of you might be like, well, the Bible does say that, that we should honor, I should honor their husbands. And then as soon as I say that, all of you that just kind of said no are going to say, yeah, but it also says that husbands should love their wives like Christ loved the church, right? And we're just going to get in this huge theological debate that's really dumb and doesn't make any sense, and this is really simple, all right? But, the, but this question does come up, what should she do? And we know that she's going to say no. And some of us might kind of think, well, should she have done that or should she not have done that? And, and let me just say that we could have that debate, but I don't think it applies at all here. Here's what I want us to see. True or false, okay, that a good husband should get drunk with a bunch of his buddies and then ask their wives to come and parade themselves around in front of them so that they can lust after her. You guys can participate just in case there's any confusion. The answer to that is false. Guys, you should have said false. If you are married, you should have said false very loud and put your arm around your wife. If you are single, you should have said false very loud so the single girls could have heard you. Right? You should not do that. Now, husbands, you should be proud of your wife. You should believe that she is beautiful and you should enjoy her beauty. But guys, it is not okay, listen, to objectify your wife or any other woman. Her beauty is for your relationship, not for others to lust after and to make jealous of. All right? And so Xerxes is totally doing something that's wrong. 
And, it, and if you do that in your own life, it's either going to lead to you using your wife for her beauty or you not loving your wife because she isn't beautiful enough. It, it does not ever lead to love in a good relationship. Now, if Xerxes is absolutely so- sober and he says, hey, honey, can you wear tonight in our bedroom that crown that I got you, that one crown that I got you, and th- just that? Now, that would be appropriate. You can have a conversation with your husband on whether or not that's going to happen or not, but not to parade her, right? He's doing something that he shouldn't do. So Vashti says no. And I absolutely love this because this man, as I said, who rules the world, the one who is closest, his favorite, absolutely humbles him. He's probably never heard no in his life, but men, how many of you know that a good wife is all it takes to humble you? to bring you to your knees, right? And so that's what Vashti does. And so these eunuchs, which I am not jealous of for multiple reasons, but this is one of them, they have to come back to the king and go, she said no, (laughs) right? So was it the right decision? And in this case, here's what I would say. I believe that Vashti did the right thing. Now, She is not a believer, so this is not, she's honoring God with everything that she just did, right? If she believes anything, she's probably Zoroastrian, and so she believes in a God, uh, Ahura Mazda, all right? It's the God of wisdom, and so if you drive a car that's a Mazda, just know who you're supporting, all right? And um, just kidding, but she probably believes in in that God, so she's not honoring God per se, but we could say that she's doing a God-honoring thing. Because here's the deal, marriage is to reveal, and I've got to be really quick, and I understand that. I've got so much to say here, and it's going to have to be for another time. But marriage is to reveal the gospel truth. It's to reveal Christ and his relationship with his people, the church. And so the man is to love his wife like Christ loved the church, to sacrifice her, to care for her, to, to, uh, to love her and provide for her. The woman, the wife, comes along and honors as the church is to honor Christ. And they do so as one together in Christ. One is not higher than the other, but God has given them different roles within the marriage to reveal him. And together in a marriage, we reveal the gospel in a more powerful way. And God has designed us to come together as one to reveal the oneness that he has with his people through his sacrifice. There is a beauty in marriage that is taking place. And so, yes, it means that men should love their wives as Christ loved the church and women should honor their husbands. But men, listen to me. That means that you do not have a wife that is a trophy wife. It means that your wife is your standard of beauty. So if anybody's like, what's your type? You have one type and it's not, well, I like this in general. It's I like her. That's it. And if you're allowing your mind to go in any other place, then your addiction to finding salvation in the things of the world will drive you away from her and the love that you are to show to her. And you will find yourself loving all sorts of other things, and it will lead you to destruction. It's going to lead him to destruction. He is going to regret this in the next chapter. But he finds himself doing what God has not called him to do because he is addicted to the things of being his own God and finding his own way. But listen, what Xerxes does is so normal. I see it all the time. So Vashti, she makes this bold move. She's like, I see what you're doing. 
and, and I see what position you're in, and I see how this is not going to end well, so no. And it enrages him. Let's quickly get through these last verses. He just gets absolutely irate. And so in verse 13, notice what he does. Does he go to his wife? It seems like it would have been a good idea. Let's talk about this. No, he's going to go to his counsel, not his wife. He bypasses her, and he doesn't go to somebody who's going to give him good godly advice, but he goes to somebody that we're going to see. It's just a, a group of idiots, basically. Right? And so he doesn't go to her and then to godly people to give godly advice of how to glorify God and what they're doing. But he goes, he bypasses her and he goes to people who are going to give him bad advice, who only, again, are addicted to themselves. And it even says in the text, <clears throat> they're worried about them. They don't care about the king or Vashti. How many of you, you're just going to people in your life for advice, bypassing God and what he's called you to do, and you're getting advice from people in the world and things of the world, and it's always falling short, and you're like, I don't understand. Like, what happens here should never have happened. He should have gone to her, and even if he went to him, please, listen to me, have people in your life who love you enough because they love God more than anything else to tell you no. To say, listen, that is a bad idea. Do not do that. Stop that. If they've done something, they will join hands with you and walk with you into the glory of God to right what you have done wrong. You need people like that. But instead of that, he goes to them and instead of them saying, hey, you need to go to her and talk to her first. Hey, I know a really good marriage counselor that you guys could get in and talk to. All they care about is themselves. And they go, listen to me. If all the women, like this is the biggest party ever. Like Vashti saying no, that is going to go viral. And all of the women are going to understand that there is a word that's spelled N-O and that it can come out of their mouth. This is bad for us. That's all they care about. And so they give this advice, this suggestion in verse 19, that Vashti be vanished. This woman that did not want to come see him. I know what we'll do. We'll just say, you can never see me again. That's their advice. And he says, okay. Why? Because he needs them to worship him. And so he sends out this decree that every man should be master of their own home. And, and here's what I want us to see with all of this. We looked last week at the most powerful man on earth, yet lacked everything that he needed for joy and satisfaction. And how our hearts are so similar to his that we're forced to ask this question, is there a better king and kingdom than the world has to offer? Is there a better king than me? Is there a better kingdom than what I can build? This week, we see how the addiction that we pursue in and of ourselves to find salvation, the provision that only this better king and kingdom can provide, causes us to deal with our sin and brokenness. And it's borderline hilarious. It's just so stupid, the things that Xerxes does in this chapter, that we look at it and go, how could anyone with any wisdom do any of this? But yet it's just because he is addicted to getting what only God can give in the things of the world. And so under the influence of the addiction to sin, he does things he would never have done. He's willing to hurt people he never would have hurt. 
And see, for us in our lives, if we are under the addiction of sin and rebellion against the one who can save us, then we will do things just like he has done. And I think that leaves us just desperately asking the question this morning, is there a better way to deal with my sin? Is there a better way to deal with my brokenness? Is there a way to free me from addiction? Or are we just forced to hide in our pride with King Xerxes? Are we forced to take the worldly advice that we see him take that leads to destruction? Does the true King Jesus give a better way of salvation to deal with our sin and brokenness? And we're going to see as we continue through the book of Esther that God's providential answer to that is yes. And we're going to see this more and more. But I believe that God dedicates this whole first chapter to the most powerful man on earth being destroyed in his brokenness to reveal to us that, yes, there's a greater king. And he deals with what's killing us in the only possible way. Listen, we all fall short. We are all sinful. We're all messed up. But there is freedom from addiction. There's a better way to deal with your sin and not just the negative addictions, but the positive addictions. Finding things of the world as the God that we desire when the one true God is the only one that can fulfill us. But there is a way out of the influence of the world and out of the broken hearts that we find within it. And it all begins with understanding our rebellion against God. That we are seeking our own way. We're desiring our own salvations. And what it requires is an understanding that there is a better king and kingdom. And that that king, king did come and he did die and he did rise. And my job is to repent of my addiction and walk towards him. That I'm walking away or I'm walking towards and I need to understand my rebellion and I need to repent. Listen to me. This is a term that every single soldier who has ever been in the army or any branch of the military understands. That you are marching in one way and your commanding officer cries out to you, halt, about face, march. And if you've ever seen this happening, they immediately stop when they hear the call. They immediately turn around when they hear the call. And they march with purpose when they hear the call. And listen to me, the gospel is the intervention into your addiction. And it is God crying out, halt, about face. And then march with purpose towards your Savior and King. And he alone will provide salvation. He alone will break the addiction. He alone will transform your heart. He alone is what you long for. He alone is what you need. And today you can place your faith in him. And if you are a follower of Christ, what is it that you are seeking or putting above him that you need to repent of today? And if you're not a follower of Christ, what is it that is keeping you from about facing, marching with purpose towards the one that you are searching for but walking away from? Today, place your faith in Christ. He is all that we need. 